Please turn with me to Romans 4, verses 1 through 5. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. There was an article in the paper yesterday that answered a question that I had when I got up. Namely, how can I help us as a church make our way back into Romans after a six-week interlude on other great things in a way that's fitting in proportion to the magnitude of what's at stake in these chapters. The article was in uh, section B, page 6, and it was entitled, Sinners Earn Eternal Damnation, Pope Says. Now, I am very thankful for every biblical truth that I share in common with every other person who believes these things. And the Roman Catholic Church in particular and our church, for example, share some stunning truths in common. God exists in a triune nature, three persons in one divine being. Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God. The scriptures are inspired by God. The Holy Spirit has been given, and without him there is no hope of holy living, and so on. Many glorious truths that we share in common with the Roman Catholic Church. However, when I read this article, which had quotations from the Pope in it, I was reminded that The Reformation, the the Protestant Reformation from 450 years ago that resulted in split-offs from the Roman Catholic Church was not unneeded, neither then, I think, nor now. It isn't just that there's a problem with the authority that's invested in the Pope. It isn't just that there's tradition alongside Scripture rendered equal authority. It isn't just that in the Eucharist there is the claim to have the actual physical presence of the risen Christ there. It isn't just the veneration of Mary. It isn't just indulgences. It isn't just purgatory and all the teaching regarding that, that's enough to warrant a reformation in my judgment. It's that there are other things that go closer to the center 
and are problematical in regard to justification by faith alone, which is what Romans is all about. I was on vacation and thinking this summer about our trek through Romans and the amount of time we're investing in this book. And I stepped back from it just to take stock and think and pray and ask God, are we on the right track? And is this a good thing? And, and the question that came to my mind is, Paul, you in the book of Romans presented your most extensive, your most thorough, your most systematic writing of your message. Why did you devote half of it, first eight chapters and more probably, to developing and unpacking and drawing out the implications of this one great doctrine of justification by faith mainly. And I reestablished my own sense of confidence that we should devote some years to it because it seems to have in the thinking of the Apostle Paul an almost unbelievable centrality, an almost unbelievable weightiness. And there must be something about us as human beings that are so prone another way, or so prone to distort, or so prone to not get it, that he takes all these chapters to develop justification by faith. And therefore, when I find in the newspaper, or anywhere else for that matter, teachings that tend to undermine the biblical teaching of justification by faith, I really get exercised. So what's the problem with this article? Well, let's be fair, first of all. I've been quoted in articles. Newspaper people never get religion right. Okay? Let's just settle it. In the media, they don't understand religion. Even lots of times in the Christian media. And therefore, Let's give the Pope a break here, all right? Let's not assume the whole story is here, every nuance is here, and so on. But what I'm reacting to in reading this article, I brought it with me. There it is. It's in paper, page 6, section B, bottom of the page, is what's coming through for people to read and the conceptions of hell, there's an article about hell, that are making their way into 100,000 homes in the Twin Cities. And I want you to feel the significance of this because, you know, sometimes you might come to church and say, oh, church, that's such a dinky little group of people. There's millions and millions of people and there's a big, wide, secular culture. And we talk about these things like justification and, and eternal life. And, and out there, when you turn on the TV, nobody else is talking about these things. And so it just seems so backwater and out of it and weird and irrelevant and good night. But look at this. This is the newspaper. 
This is the newspaper. We're dealing with issues that, for whatever reason, are more and more in our culture being pushed right out there into public life. Religion, religion, Baptist-style, Catholic-style, Pentecostal-style, you name it, it is being pushed more and more out into public life. And less and less do I feel at least like what we're talking about will be perceived as irrelevant. In fact, I thought that one of the best ways you could do evangelism this week at work would be to go home, find your Saturday paper, and cut this out. Stick it in your pocket tomorrow morning, take it to work, and if the occasion arises at lunch, pull this out and say, find a Catholic. Okay, There's lots of them in the Twin Cities. 80% of the Twin Cities are either Catholic or Lutheran. So pick a Catholic or Lutheran. You'll find one. <laughs> Many of them are absolutely just as born again and going to heaven as I am. But a lot of them, and a lot of Baptists, are nominal. Okay? They, they just mouth it. They don't they just grew up in it. Grew up Baptist or grew up Catholic or grew up Lutheran. And it doesn't mean much to them. So lay this on the table and say, do you read this, what the Pope says about hell? And they'll say, no, I didn't read that. Or, yes, I read that. And say, what do you think about that? And then preach my sermon to them. <laughs> in, in about five minutes over lunch. So what's the problem? Let me read you. Now, you listen carefully. This is a quote from the Pope. Whether they got it right or not, you can... I, I went all over the net. I went to the Vatican site. I went to all kind of Catholic sites on the Internet looking for the whole encyclical. I wanted to read it in context, and I couldn't find it. So this is the best I can do. Quote, Hell is not a punishment imposed externally by God, but the condition resulting from attitudes and actions which people adopt in this life. Hell is the state of those who freely and definitively separate themselves from God, the source of all life and joy. So eternal damnation is not God's work, but is actually our own doing. Close quote. Hmm. I think the positive halves of those statements are true. And the negative halves of those statements are false. In other words, I think it's false to say hell is not a punishment imposed externally by God. I think that's false. Very misleading Misleading, very dangerous doctrine. I think it's false to say, quote, eternal damnation is not God's work, close quote. That's false. I'll come back in a minute to tell you why, from the Bible, I think those statements are false. But here's the big question. What's that got to do with justification? Why am I so worked up about this article in regard to Romans 4, 1 to 5, and what I want to say to you from the Bible this morning? Here's the problem. 
If that's true, that hell is not a punishment imposed externally by God, if hell is not God's work of damnation, then justification by faith, as Paul understands it, is either unintelligible or unnecessary. Why? Because if my fundamental problem with God is not that he's a judge and I'm guilty in his courtroom and he has pronounced the sentence of guilty upon me and sentenced me externally as a just judge to eternal damnation, I don't need to be justified in his presence. Rather, I need some other way to get home to heaven. And the last paragraph in the article gave another way. But I won't, I won't worry with that because it wasn't a quotation, it was a paraphrase. Either we do away with justification, as Paul teaches it altogether, or we transform its meaning from acquittal and the imputation of righteousness in a courtroom setting and turn it into transformation. If hell is something I gradually deteriorate into by virtue of character deformation, period, then probably the pathway of salvation will be, either by my own free will or by divine enablement, gradual character character improvement and transformation until I can get to heaven. And justification has no place in that conception of salvation. So, since hell is not the consequence of the damnation of God, heaven will probably not be the consequence of the justification of God. If damnation is seen as the deterioration of character, justification will probably be redefined as the improvement of character. And I let you study on your own whether that is in fact the case in Roman Catholic theology. The Reformation happened because the Reformers thought it was. You can decide for yourself. Go find your priest and ask him, what do you mean by justification, and how does it happen? Now, this is a big issue. Hell is a punishment imposed externally by God, contrary to what the article says. Hell is external damnation and not merely our own work. And the reason I say it now is because I have spent a year and a half trying to teach you that that's what Romans 1 to 3 says. And I'll just read the verses again. Chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. We're talking about wrath of God coming down on us from the outside, doing things that hurt us. That's hell. 
The wrath of God is coming upon us. Or chapter 1, verse 24, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. Verse 26, God gave them over to the degrading passions. Verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And worse than that, once they have the lust, once they have the depraved mind, once they are totally sold out to evil, they're not left to themselves. Like the article says, hell is not simply a self-imposed condition wrought by our alienation from God. Chapter 2, verse 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. You've got an added thing that comes in here. The judgment of God falls. It falls from outside. It falls from heaven. It is the work of God. Chapter 2, verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's enough. There's lots more. We could read more. But that's enough. It is wrong. It is misleading. It is damaging. I'm tempted to say it is damning to teach a hundred thousand households in the Twin Cities. Hell is not a punishment imposed externally by God. External damnation is not God's work. Those are false sentences. Now, why does that matter? It matters because if you don't know the trouble you're in, you probably won't rescue or recognize the rescue when it comes. In fact, if you don't know the trouble you're in, your ears will not be attuned to grasp the beauty and the preciousness and the necessity of justification. And you will probably think of your problem in another way and think that there's another way to get yourself right with God. And then another gospel will seem to fit and you'll embrace it to your peril. These are important things. It is important to know the nature of our plight so that when the gospel of justification by faith alone arrives, it will fit. This is why people get saved. The Holy Spirit has granted you a recognition in your heart and mind to know your problem. So that when the gospel arrives, shaped just the way the Bible has it shaped, it goes clink. It just fits right into your true condition and lights go on everywhere and you find a self-evidencing witness of God himself that these things are so. And oh, how destructive to teach people that hell is just a moral condition that we have worked out ourselves and not the punishment imposed by God from outside. If our problem is not that there's a just judge who has looked upon our law-breaking and found us guilty and sentenced us to hell and will one day put his full wrath and judgment upon us, if that is not our condition, the doctrine of justification is irrelevant, and you can just stand up 
and go out because the rest of this sermon will be of no interest to you and no significance for you. But if we're on the right track in understanding our plight, and if we're on the right track now in getting into verses 1 to 5 about the remedy and the rescue, then the rest of this service may save your eternal life. So let's listen. Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 4 is answering this question, and everybody in this room should answer this question, right? And should ask it at least. Okay. If there's a God, and He's just, and holy, and has a will, and commandments, and a law, and I have broken them, and I have not loved Him, and I have not trusted Him, and I have not followed Him, and I have not worshipped Him, and I have not cherished Him, and delighted Him, I have offended Him, and trampled His glory in the dirt by ignoring Him, how in the world can somebody like me get right, get right with this God, and, and presume that I could ever have a friendship, or a, a loving, eternal Fellowship with him. How can that be? The answer is given using Abraham this time as an example. And the question is posed in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? Remember the song, the old spiritual, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace. In the eyes of the Lord. What did Abraham find? That, that's a quotation. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's a quotation from Genesis 6, 8. That's biblical. Now, what did Abraham find? That's the question. Did he find grace or did he negotiate on another basis? Works, earning. How did Abraham get right with God? That's the question. Now the answer starts in verse 2. And it picks up the theme of chapter 3, verse 27, boasting. Go back up there with me. 327. Where then is boasting? Answer, it's excluded. How is it excluded? By what kind of law? Works? No. By a law of faith, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So works will never exclude boasting. And somebody pops up and says, ah, but what about Abraham? What about Abraham? Abraham was known in the Jewish community of those days as the one who was obedient and he had worked, he had, he had sacrificed his son Isaac, he had, he had looked Lot in the face and said, you have any part of the land you want. And he's real generous hearted. So is that the way Abraham got right with God? He says, God, I just let, a, let Lot take the best part of the land. Is that good enough? You accept me now? Or he takes his son and he almost sacrifices him in obedience to God and he says, is that good enough? Is that the way he got right with God so that he could boast in those things? Now, here's the answer that Paul gives in verse 2. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does that mean? 
Does it mean, well, he may have been justified by works. And if he was, then he could boast before men, but he couldn't boast before God. Is that what it means? He may have been justified by works. And if he was, he could boast before men, but not before God. I don't think that's what it means. And the reason I don't is because verse 3 supports verse 2, and it doesn't support that. Look at verse 3. Well, what does Scripture say? And then he quotes Genesis 15, 6. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the support and the argument given from Scripture for what he just said in verse 2. Does that point support people who are justified by works can boast before men but not before God? It doesn't. wouldn't make any sense to say, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Therefore, people can be justified by works and if they are, they can boast before men but not before God. That is nonsense. It doesn't work. Well, what would work? What interpretation of verse 2 would work so that verse 3 is an authentic support for it, which it is for Paul? And here's my effort. I think verse 2 should be paraphrased like this so that verse 3 supports it. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But before God, such a thing is inconceivable. That's my paraphrase of verse 2. If Abraham was justified by works, okay, if that happened, he has something to boast about. But before God, such a thing is inconceivable. In other words, the if clause in verse 2 is being negated by verse 3. Abraham didn't get justified by works. That's the point of verse 3. He got justified by faith. And therefore, the hypothetical possibility is rule out. And there's no boasting, either before men or before God, when it comes to how you get justified. Now, why? Why does this rule out boasting? If you get justified by faith, or if faith is reckoned as righteousness, why does that rule out boasting? It says Abraham believed. It doesn't say Abraham worked for God and therefore was justified. It doesn't say Abraham made progress in character formation and therefore was justified. It doesn't say that Abraham bore the fruits of faith and therefore was justified. It says he believed and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. He was justified. He found grace. And now Paul takes verse 4 and 5 and he unpacks the two key words in verse 3. Faith or believed and credited or reckoned. And he does it in a way to show that Abraham and you and I cannot boast if we are justified by faith. Why not? Verse 4. He analyzes what it would mean to work for our justification. He says, Now to the one who works, 
If you want to go about your justification by works, here's what you're doing. To the one who works, his wage, that's what you get if you work. You get a wage. Not a gift, but a wage. His wage is not credited as a favor. That is, according to grace. There's no grace when you're working for justification. But it would be credited to him as what is due him. So justification would not put an end to boasting because when you work, it says, you are trying to make someone owe you something and when they pay it, you can say, I deserve that. And that's boasting. So the only way to eliminate boasting before God and man in getting right with God is to eliminate works. And he does. To the one who works, his wage would be credited not as a favor, not by grace, not as a gift. It would just be a debt. And we have already seen that Abraham didn't go about it that way. He went about it another way. He believed God. He trusted God. He banked on God's grace and mercy. Now, verse 5 is the last thing we'll look at. And I want to say before I look at it with you, I think I would say, if I had to vote right now on one verse in all the Bible that is the most important verse for making clear the doctrine of justification by faith alone, it would be verse 5 of Romans 4. Here's what it says. But, he's giving the alternative to the works way of justification. But, to the one who does not work. Wow. Really? You mean to say that? To the one who does not work. But believes him who justifies the, take a breath, ungodly. His faith is Credited as righteousness. Now, in that very short sentence are three bright beams and signals pointing toward justification by faith alone. Let's just take them one at a time and we'll be done. Number one, the first phrase, to the one who does not work. Now, here's a portrait. Get this. This is a portrait of what happens in the moment of justification. We're talking about how you get started in the Christian life. We're talking about a momentary event when a judge gives a verdict. It doesn't take a long process of transformation in the person that he's dealing with. A long process may result after that sitting in jail or of improvement outside of jail, but the verdict is momentary. That's justification. Justification is the declaration of the verdict, not guilty on the basis of another righteousness, namely Christ's which I now, in this moment, impute to you 
through your faith. And in that moment, listen to this phrase. It happens to the one who does not work. That is the clearest statement in all the Bible, I think, that justification is by faith alone. So that when Martin Luther stuck the word alone into verse 28 of chapter 3, we reckon the man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. When he said, we reckon the man is justified by faith alone, he added that to the Bible. It's not in the text. He interpreted it. He interpreted it correctly. Because those words, in the moment of the verdict, in the moment of transaction between you and God, as to whether you will have a right standing with God, and He will reckon you righteous and impute to you the righteousness of His Son, and forgive all your sins, and count you not guilty, and take away your condemnation, all of that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. There's no process. You don't have time to work. You can't clean it up. You can't move out of the bedroom. You can't sell all the drugs. You can't change your clothes. You can't get rid of the disease. There's no time. Justification happens instantaneously. It's a verdict from the judge, which is why this issue of saying that our problem and our damnation and hell is not something imposed on us from outside by God's penal justice. It is indeed. And that's where the Christian life starts. You can't make any headway in the Christian life until you get this settled. Signal number one, to the one who does not work, God reckons his faith as righteousness. Not work. This is hard for some of you to believe. You, you come in this morning, you say, it cannot be that easy. It cannot be that easy because that's just going to produce a bunch of nominal, fakey Christians who are going around saying, I'm justified because I did this or that and live like the devil. Test him and see what happens to you. I know, I know, I know that in the history of the church this doctrine has been abused. It was abused in Paul's day, right? Chapter 6, let us sin that grace may abound. Cool. Yeah, right. Justification by faith alone. Don't have to change anything. I'm not going to take the doctrine out of the Bible in order to not run the risk of fake Christians. I'll deal with fake Christians when we get to chapter 6, and there are a lot of them. But if you're sitting there feeling hopelessly lost in your sin this morning, I'm too dirty, I'm, I have sinned. You don't know what I've done, Pastor John. God knows exactly what you've done, and he knew exactly what you would do when he inspired this text. And he didn't say, oops. There is a way out, and the way out is not by getting it cleaned up first. You'll never, ever be clean enough. The way out is to listen to verse 5. 
to the one who does not work. Second signal, next phrase, but believes him who justifies the ungodly. Underline in your Bible the ungodly and leap for joy. Martin Luther came right out of his Wittenberg chair over this word. John Bunyan, who struggled with depression and attempted suicides for years, when this word landed on him in an orchard, he leaped for joy. God justifies the ungodly. And we cry out, how can that be? And the answer is, because Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6. The point of the word ungodly here is so important. It is saying, now listen carefully to this, we're almost done. It is saying, faith is not godliness. You might come to this text, you might, you might entertain the possibility of justification by faith. Say, oh, 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 I get it, I get it. If you, if you muster up enough faith, if you do this great and glorious work of faith, God will look at it and say, wow, that's beautiful and that's good and that's godly and we'll take that and that's good enough to put on the credit side of your ledger and it'll balance out all the sins of your life. That act of faith is now counted for righteousness in the sense that it is righteousness and balances everything out. If that's the way you think, You have just made hash out of the biblical teaching. The point of the word ungodly in verse 5 is when you believe, you are still ungodly. Otherwise, there's no ungodly person to justify by faith. Faith has suddenly become your godliness and now you merit justification. This, this is very frightening doctrine. It's so glorious. People say it cannot be. It just cannot be that the production of a mustard seed of faith by the power of the Holy Spirit somehow gives me a right standing. How? Well, because in the courtroom, when you are enabled by grace, To look away from your ungodly self to God and Christ in their grace and in their mercy and fall on them in dependence. God the judge looks at that and in his extraordinary grace looks at his son and all of his righteousness and all of his atoning sacrifice and suffering. And he takes the righteousness of Christ and he puts it on you. And he takes all your sins and he puts them on Christ. And he says, in Christ, not guilty. No condemnation. That happens in a moment. And you build on that for the rest of your life. If you get this mixed up and try to reverse it so that later the verdict, not guilty, 
I, I get that. If I just get good enough, if I, if I just get good enough, he might say, not guilty. You'll never be saved. You'll never be saved. The verdict is delivered to faith. And on that faith, you start to work. Let me say it this way. Good works are going to have a place in the Christian life. Godliness has a place in the Christian life. In fact, it is essential. But good works or godly works have no place whatsoever in your life before justification. Any such works commended to God before justification as the warrant for justification is described in verse 4. And you will get your due if you approach God that way. And it will not be the hell described in that article. It will be judgment from a living, holy, wrathful God. And the last signal that justification is by faith alone is the third phrase in the verse. His faith is credited as righteousness. Not his works are credited as righteousness. Not his love is credited as righteousness. Not his fruit of faith is credited as righteousness. But his faith, and he doesn't say anything else is credited as righteousness. And therefore it is faith alone. Now, I'm finished. And I end by simply looking you in the eye and saying... Do you want to walk out of here right with God? Peace with God. He's on your side. If God is for us, who can be against us? You want to be able to say that, which is coming in Romans 8. All about justification. If you want to be able to say, I'm on his side, he's on my side. And if he's on my side, who can be against me? Do you want that? Do you want to hear when you go to sleep tonight, not the damning of your conscience, but the acquittal of your judge saying, no condemnation, not guilty, sleep well. You want to hear that? Do you want the rest of your lived out life to be on a rock? That is so firm and stable, you can't be knocked over by articles in the newspaper or anything else. But you're a rock through all the troubles of life and all the false teachings that swarm around you. If so, then the word to you from God through my lips, based on this scripture, is trust him who justifies the ungodly right now right now would you stand for the benediction and now may the Lord cause the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God to shine in your hearts so that you may see and cherish the glorious truth that an alien righteousness, Christ's, 
is imputed freely to those who trust the one who justifies the ungodly. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.